Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. I'm pleased to say we're joined by Tom Beckett, Chief Investment Officer at Punter Southall Wealth. Tom has 17 years investment experience and is an associate of the CISI. He joined Punter Southall Wealth, formerly Sigma Investment Management in 2004 and started working on individual portfolios within the private client team before quickly moving on to the investment team. As well as heading up their investment process and asset allocation decisions, he's responsible for a network of contacts throughout the UK, Europe, America and the Far East. He's also responsible for their managed portfolio service and investment selection process. Tom graduated from Trinity Cobbler. College Dublin with an MA in Classics in 2003. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, Tom, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Richard. Thank you. Now, in terms of where we are, 2021, obviously a lot of the themes have come with us uh, from the end of 2020. I get the impression it's almost in in investment terms, uh, something of a carrot and stick going on at the moment. Obviously, in terms of the carrot, we've got the rollout of the vaccine for COVID-19 and a seamlessly endless fiscal and monetary stimulus program going on around the world. And in terms of the stick, of course, we have uh, variants on the pandemic emerging, the effect that's having on economies and indeed obvious sectors such as hospitality, leisure, airlines and so on. Where do you feel we are in terms of the current situation? Yeah, it's a great question, Richard, and it's um, pretty open-ended. So I'll I'll try and keep my answers concise and and sensible, um, even if it's very difficult to do so at this point in time, because it's a case of New Year, same problems. And it's amazing how little progress we appear to have made um, from where we were at the end of last year. I mean, if we think back to November uh, and I live in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, and we went into a three-week lockdown from which, you know, my part of the world has never re-emerged. So, you know, we sit here and are still dealing with the, the very same problems. And, you know, I came into this year much as did many people and investment commentators, um, thinking of a new dawn, new hope, uh, and a new year. And those hopes have been somewhat crashed upon the rocks of reality at the start of this difficult year so far. So it, it seems very similar in terms of events and in terms of markets. You know, there, there is still a, a common theme to what we saw at the end of last year. A lot of violent rotations in markets, a lot of volatility generally, um, but still markets being driven higher on hopes for the future and the very real fact, as you mentioned, that there is endless fiscal and monetary support. So where do we find ourselves with those things all chucked in together? Well, uh, the start of the year, my expectation was that things would get back to normal relatively quickly. Um, I didn't believe the vaccines would be a silver bullet, but I did think that they would ease the pressure on governments and allow them to ease the pressure of restrictions upon us. That was clearly now wrong. Um, and I think we have to push back any expectations of reopenings across the developed world for some time uh, into the future. Um, and um, my own personal view was by the time we got to the second and then into the third, and particularly towards the end of the year, in the fourth quarter, we were going to see a real renaissance of global economic growth and things were going to look, at least from a cyclical short term perspective, fantastic. I'm not so sure that is the case now. And certainly the 
um, comments out of our own government in the last few days, all of which are incredibly depressing, are setting us up for another year, I think, of economic disappointment, even if I'm still of the view that things get markedly better and improve in the second half of the year. Now, you mentioned where does that leave us in the form of financial markets? Um, I guess the honest truth is I don't really know. Um, my best guess is that we will continue to see positive gains in financial markets this year, albeit with plenty of volatility thrown into the equation. But I think markets probably do make positive returns this year for three reasons that we can go on to discuss. The first of which is investors really want to believe in hope for tomorrow and a bright future. It's as simple as that. And you can see that in the form of positioning now and the elements of complacency that we're seeing across financial markets. But the second point is the central bankers know that the successful, successful failure of the next few years is in their hands, and they are going to keep things very loose for a long time still to come, and they're going to run their policies hot to try and improve the economic situation. Third pillar, and why I think we'll see markets make further gains as we progress through this year, is a very similar situation to central bankers. The governments know that there are now massive output gaps in the economy. There's big economic issues to overcome. And they're trying to try and pump prime their respective economies as much as possible to stop the global economic engine from spluttering and hopefully getting back up towards full capacity before too long. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and close to home, I mean, if, if we just um, consider the UK for a moment, obviously we, we've had this uh, situation where it's been something of a, an investment pariah for some time now in the eyes of overseas uh, institutional investors. It did seem that with Brexit at least being out of the way, there, there was something of a sprightly start to the year. Um, it's often difficult in terms of looking at the UK market if you're talking about the FTSE 100 on the basis of their exposure to overseas earning. But, of course, sterling is sometimes a good barometer. Well, what's the situation in terms of the UK? It's uh, another wide-ranging question um, and one which there isn't perfect answers for, but I think we are seeing some more parity with regards to the UK situation than we have seen for some time, COVID aside, which I'll talk about in a minute. And you mentioned in your um, introduction from my biography that I uh, studied classics in college, and the good thing is I'm uh, now saddled up with loads of pointless uh, ancient phrases, including that around the Sword of Damocles. And the Sword of Damocles has been hanging over the UK equity market and UK assets for a number of years now, looking back 2016, because of the concerns over the Brexit situation. And that reason to hate us and the reason for the UK equity market to be a pariah is now over, which is good. Admittedly, the deal itself, whilst I think pretty comprehensive on trade, is pretty, um, um, you know, there's lots of gaps with regards to the financial services sector and other services sectors, such as the accounting sector and the um, legal sectors. But, but broadly, the fact that the deal has been done now, I think, means we can move on as a country, at least. Well, <laughs> I hope that's the case, where 2021 has thrown up a number of surprises already. So I think that's a very simple reason for people to hate us, to avoid us, to underweight us, to not own us, is now probably gone. Uh, and that can only be considered to be a good thing. But I think focusing on politics and the um, Brexit situation is somewhat of a misleading factor for the UK equity market and the performance of our economy going forwards. Because in all honesty, the UK equity market hasn't um, not made any gains really for five years on the back of Brexit. It's not made any gains in the last five years because for a very long time, as you and I discussed before, 
the UK equity market, represented by a number of companies, just simply hasn't made any profits. And we haven't seen any profits growth from the UK equity market in a very long time. And that's the reason why the UK market has underperformed. Certainly, you know, people had an excuse not to own us. But the reality is, if you're buying an investment for its fundamentals, the fundamentals of the UK equity market for the last five or six years has been very poor. Now, I think taking the answer to the first question and combining it with an outlook from the UK, that should, all things being equal, brackets, which they never are, that should lead to a very good period um, for UK equities as we head into the second half of the year and into next year. And the reason is very simple. The UK equity market itself is quite focused upon the cyclical economic situation. So with lots of banks and lots of oil companies, materials companies, et cetera, they typically respond well when the economy is growing quite strongly. And if I'm right, which would be a career first, and the economy does do well in the second half of the year into next year, then that should be reflected in corporate profits, which should be reflected in the fact that the UK um, equity market starts to perform better. So in very simple terms, yes, the sword of Damocles has been removed. Um, does that mean that there's um, much more certainty going forward? Not necessarily, but if the economy does pick up, that should be good for the um, UK economic and UK equity market situations. And I think will turn us from a relative laggard into a relative leader. As an aside, and certainly something that's of interest to, to our customers has, has been the whole question of income. And obviously, we had um, a number of dividend cuts or reductions uh, in 2020. Uh, and again, I know we've discussed this before. Do you think companies will come back all guns blazing uh, in terms of uh, dividends this year? Or are they likely to use the reset they were forced into last year as a reason for paying slightly lower dividends in the immediate future? Um, I think they'll come back, but will they come back to the degree that they were beforehand? No, I don't think they will, um, for a number of reasons, but not least because they probably were paying out too much to start off with. I think there's going to be less cash going forwards because this is a profits issue at this point in time. I think another point is that companies will have psychological impairment from the recent crisis and will seek to shore up their balance sheets into the future. And I think the other thing to note from an investor perspective is recognising how quickly these companies needed to cut their dividends heading into this situation. You know, a lot of investors look at it and go, well, once bitten, twice shy. We don't necessarily want them to do that again. So I think, Richard, this could well be a situation whereby companies employ much better capital discipline, and that in itself is rewarded by shareholders rather than just paying out high dividends, which lots of these companies simply can't afford to do. Now, turning to the US, um, obviously, whereas the FTSE 100 probably lost around 14% uh, during 2020, all the three major US indices uh, ended up in positive territory, particularly, of course, uh, the technology-heavy uh, NASDAQ. Um, in, in terms of, um, not so much in terms of valuations, uh, we can understand the reason why a lot of big tech stocks had such a good run. Um, but there does seem to be a, a, an absolutely um, unstoppable juggernaut going on with, with tech stocks in particular. Um, are we getting uh, a little frothy there, or is the simple fact that the world has changed and we need to be recognising the potential for big tech? Are we getting a little frothy? Definitely. Um, but we should always note that valuation situations and you know the excesses that we can spot quite clearly in situations like this can go from being silly 
to sillier to silliest. And I think that people are now effectively viewing the situation in markets like the NASDAQ and indeed in the S&P 500, given the fact that the S&P 500 is now 50% tech and healthcare. Um, and they're recognising that and saying, well, actually, you know, think valuations are very expensive, but we can understand it. Um, and they're probably going to get more expensive. You know, I think we are probably are in a situation where we could see a bubble situation in certain sectors blowing up into a full-blown mania. I think you have to question whether or not we're seeing that already. And my view, and I'm always too cautious and everything, is that we probably are seeing that in certain sectors already. And I think there is obviously egregious overvaluation now in, in certain sectors, and, and, and that is a cause for concern. Does that mean that all technology companies are extremely overvalued? No, I think some technology companies are still quite cheap, but I think it's probably a chance to be selected. And, you know, in our portfolios, we are underweight US equities. Um, but within that, we can still find plenty of sectors that we find attractive in the US. So as examples would be some of the um, green technology sectors. I mean, I mentioned healthcare already. I think that's fascinatingly attractive. You know, the very simple fact is that we are going to live longer and longer lives and we're going to want to have medicines to keep those longer and longer lives as fruitful as possible. And the healthcare sector will be at the forefront of the new frontier that is us. And I think that could lead to a golden age of healthcare investment, which is not reflected in valuations in the US healthcare sector, as an example, trades at a 50% discount to the rest of the market. Yeah, the rest of the market is expensive, but healthcare is too cheap. So I think in answer to your question, there are pockets of excess in the US market. There's pockets of excess in all markets around the world. This has been created and the bubble has been unleashed by the, you know, let's call it $10, $12 trillion worth of fresh money printed last year by our friends, the central bankers. In that sense, it makes some valuation excesses we're seeing excessive. But the good news is you can avoid a lot of this nonsense and still find very attractive investments. But I think the tale for this year, Richard, and the decade ahead is we need to be increasingly selective. You know, if you think about the last decade, you didn't need people like you and I to explain investments to people. You just needed to go long and be strong, buy anything and see it go up in value. My view is the turbulent 20s, as I described them previously, is going to be a time when active management really starts to come back to the fore. And with that in mind, are there any particular um, sectors that are, are ticking your boxes at the moment, or indeed geographies outside of the, the obvious UK and US? Yeah, well, let, let's think about geographies first of all, and then I'll come back to talk about sectors, because I don't necessarily think it's just as simple as picking specific sectors. I think there are companies in each sector, but we'll talk about that in a minute. From the regional perspective, I think 2020 was a crossing the Rubicon year um, in Asia. I think Asia has come out of this so much stronger on a relative basis, and it's not hard, uh, than the developed West. But I think increasingly Asia will be viewed as a safe haven growth opportunity for investors to exploit. And I think for people to still use the term emerging when referring to North Asia is just prehistoric, you know, so antiquated, it just misses the point entirely. So I think Asia, including Japan, um, is going to be a great source of investment growth going forwards. And there are plenty of themes there, not least the Asian consumer, which I think is going to be very powerful for our portfolios as we go forward. And to be perfectly honest, it had better be, or the outlook is going to be truly grim for the rest of the world. We need that engine to keep on firing like it has done in recent times. So I think if you had to press me on the geography I particularly like, it would be North Asia. In terms of sectors, um, Asian consumption I've mentioned already, I think consumer companies that sell to Asia, also from Western markets, will continue to do well. I think that would be a good source of profits growth into the future. 
I've mentioned healthcare, I've mentioned green technology, but perhaps the more interesting one for your listeners is actually some of the sectors that everyone hates. And at the moment, the two sectors we're doing the most work on are energy, i.e. bad old fossil fuels, and why? Because everyone hates them. And secondly, the uh, next pariah banking sector is the banking sector, and that's also something we're doing a lot of work on. I, I can't see a situation whereby banks are allowed to make huge profits into the future. I just don't think the Biden administration and increasingly leftist governments across the developed world are going to allow banks to make super normal profits. But can they grow their profits? Yes. Are they cheap? Certainly. And could we see big write-backs on some of the write-downs of the loans that we saw in 2020? Absolutely. So I think from a perspective of sectors, you know, sectors all have good companies within them. But I think really, I'm trying to balance those sectors with the best growth potential, healthcare, green technology as two key examples, alongside some of those undervalued sectors, such as banks and oil companies, where I think there is the best chance of recovery returns into the future. Well, unfortunately, Tom, that's uh, just about all we've got time for. I must thank uh, Tom Beckett again there for uh, not only his time, but also his valuable insight. And, and thank you for listening. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview.